Welcome back, friends. Bill Creasy here with another episode of Scripture Uncovered. Well, we left Jesus and the gang at the wedding of Cana's after party at Peter's house on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, where they spent a few days getting to know each other, having a grand old time, but then it was time to go home. Jesus and Mary would have walked back to Nazareth, a 43-mile walk. I've walked that walk, actually, on the Jesus Trail, and uh, not a difficult walk, and one that was certainly doable in Jesus' day when they walked everywhere. But back they went. Now, I can imagine, if you had had all that time with Jesus, you walked from Jerusalem back up to Nazareth, you attended the wedding at Cana, you had a three-day after party at Peter's house. What did all these guys think during the time Jesus and Mary were gone? They went back to Nazareth, and now what? Well, I don't know how long Jesus stayed in Nazareth, but he did go back to Capernaum. And we read very quickly, he made a decision. After his baptism, after getting to know these guys, he made a decision to launch his public ministry. So he went back to Capernaum. And we read just very briefly here in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 4, at verse 18. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Well, of course Jesus knew that. Uh, Andrew was, along with John, in room 631 at the Hyatt when they spent the day together with Jesus and then brought Peter to him. And they had the after party at Peter's house. So you see, we're just getting a, a brief survey, a brief summary here. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I'll make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. James and John are partners in the fishing business with Peter and Andrew, and the father of James and John, Zebedee. And Zebedee's wife, Salome, is either a sister or sister-in-law to Jesus' mother, Mary. So Jesus is related to James and John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing the nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father, and they followed him. So we have a whole lot of backstory to this. Nowhere does Jesus walk up to a person, look them in the eye, and say, follow me, with them knowing nothing about him. No, he spent time getting to know these people and choosing the ones that he would bring into his inner circle. And once he had the group, the core group, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. He went all throughout Galilee, teaching, preaching, and healing. Our first century historian Josephus, who was also an officer in the Roman military and in charge of that territory of Galilee, he writes that there were 240 towns and villages 
in Galilee? 240. How many of them did Jesus visit? Well, a pretty good number, I would think. But they went all throughout, teaching, preaching, and healing. And news about him spread all over Syria. And people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, the paralyzed, and he healed them all. Large crowds came from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan, and they all followed him. Now, when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. If you've been to Galilee and to Capernaum, Capernaum is right on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Again, think of the Sea of Galilee as a clock. Capernaum is right around 10.30 or 11 o'clock on that clock, right on the water. It's a fishing village, a fishing town of, at the time, perhaps 15,000 people. And that's where Jesus chose to make his headquarters. He lived with Peter and Peter's family. Why would Jesus choose that location? Well, the main international trade route, the Via Maris, that originated in Egypt, paralleled the Mediterranean coast, Via Maris, Way of the Sea, then cut inland at Megiddo, through the Jezreel Valley, around the west side of the Sea of Galilee, and on up to Damascus. It was the main international trade route. What a perfect place for Jesus' public ministry. If you want the word to get out to the world, that's a good place to start. And that's exactly what he did. He went up on a mountainside. Oh, not really a mountain. It's the Mount of Beatitudes. From Peter's house at Capernaum, it's about a 10 or 15 minute walk. Just up the hill, and there's only one hill to walk up. That's it. And that hill has a, is naturally shaped as an amphitheater. In fact, a graduate student back in the early 80s, I believe it was, uh, did a dissertation on the acoustics of that hillside and found they were very similar to what today is the Disney Center up in Los Angeles. Really good acoustics. I've been there many times. This last teaching tour to Israel was my 63rd, so I know the area pretty well. And it used to be that we'd walk down the hill from the church on the Mount of Beatitudes, sit down on the hillside. I would go down even further, and I would speak in a normal voice, and people would hear me just fine. So you could put 5,000 people on that hillside with no problem whatsoever, and they could hear with crystal clarity. So Jesus went up on that hillside, and he sat down. And he began to teach. Now, this teaching is absolutely brilliant. It's very simply organized. We have a clever and memorable introduction, the Beatitudes. Blessed is A, for they shall be B. Blessed is C, for they shall be D. Blessed is E, for they shall be F. Nine statements. Then, six propositions that exceed the law then six concrete actions to implement the law, and finally, a three-part call to action. 
it's perfectly structured. And I tell you, if you have a teaching this good, you don't do it just one time. There were 240 towns and villages in Galilee, and I'll bet Jesus gave some version of the Sermon on the Mount at all those places. It's a good material to work with. But he begins with his clever and memorable introduction. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Notice he didn't say blessed are the poor. There's nothing blessed about being poor. I've been poor, I've been not. Not is considerably better. But poor, no, nothing blessed about that. When I was a graduate student living on ramen noodles and bulk rice from Safeway with packets of ketchup on it, that was not a great way to live. Although, I have to say that my graduate school days were the golden years of my life. They were the best. But the poverty was not so good. Blessed are the poor in spirit. That is, those who recognize their desperate need for God. Those who recognize a gaping hole in the very center of who they are that, that only God can fill. You may have tried other things, sex, drugs, rock and roll, whatever it might be, but there's a vast emptiness inside, a true poverty. Blessed are the poor in spirit because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You cannot take one step closer to a Savior until you recognize your need to be saved. That's the first step. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn, not in the sense of bereavement, though that may be part of it, but those who recognize that, that vast emptiness in their own heart and mourn over it, who desperately want it to be filled, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. The meek. Not people who, when trouble comes, crawl under a table and let people beat on them. No, blessed are the meek, those who recognize their position before God. You know, we think we're, we'll step out into heaven and there will be God like an old grandfather, Santa Claus on a throne, and we'll run up to him and jump in his lap and he'll hug us and say, boy, I'm so glad you're here. No. When we see God Almighty, creator of the universe, we'll be flat on our faces before him where we belong, recognizing who he is, the awesome magnitude of who God is and the total insignificance of who we are. And the very fact that God's own Son, God himself enfleshed, gave his life to bring us there, that puts us in the right frame of reference. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are those who, recognizing the emptiness in their own heart, who mourn over that emptiness, who desperately want to be right, 
they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. When you recognize the emptiness in your own heart and you recognize God Almighty, creator of the universe, and the only thing that can fill that emptiness is him, then when you see others in the very same position, be merciful to them. Not critical, not condemning, because you were there. You know what it's like. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. That goes to motive. Blessed are the pure in heart. Why do you want to be right with God? Because of what he'll give you? I hope not. You know, I've thought about this a lot. And, you know, we're getting, as we get older, it becomes acutely aware that we're not going to live forever. You know, my mother died when she was 47. She had cancer. She had cancer at 41 and died at 47. My father died of cancer. And now friends are beginning to die. Uh, we're not going to live forever, folks. Why do we love God? It should be for who he is. You know, I've often thought about it. If, if I were to die tonight or 10 years from now, I'm rather indifferent to it. I, I've, had a, I've had a good life. I have two great sons. Um, and I really couldn't wish for anything more. I've climbed big mountains, dived deep oceans, had great adventures all over the world, got to know all of you, taken many of you to Israel, Egypt, Jordan, Turkey, Greece, Italy, Spain. It's been a great life. I don't want to cling to it. And if when I die, it's simply like, like your last colonoscopy. Boom, you're gone. End of story. If that's what it is, I'm okay with that. Or if it's an extraordinary adventure into something magnificent. I'm okay with that too. But it shouldn't be the reason for loving and serving God. We love and serve God for who he is, not for what we'll get. That's being nothing more than a spiritual mercenary. So it goes to motive. Blessed are the pure in heart. They will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Once we're in that position 
of recognizing our desperate need for God, of that, that gaping emptiness inside. Once we recognize that, we put ourselves in the proper position before God. We love him for who he is, not for what he gives us. Then we're in a position to bring peace not only to ourselves, but to all those around us. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Not blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When you start down that path of being aligned within the life of God and the family of God, you'll find persecution. Oh, over, over the years, there have been hundreds if not thousands of martyrs in the Christian church. But just little things being looked down on like at work. Oh, oh, you know her, the church lady. Eh, you'll be persecuted. Oh, well, goes with the territory. And blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you. No, because of me because of me. So rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the very same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So a clever and memorable introduction. This is pretty darn good stuff. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled upon by men. Now, you might pause there and say, wait a minute, how can salt lose its saltiness? Salt is salt. I never understood that until we visited a Bedouin camp in the central Sinai Peninsula. Not a commercial place where they take you and entertain you, but a real Bedouin encampment. And we were greeted with great hospitality. Hospitality is very important in the Bedouin culture. And uh, we, were, we were greeted warmly. And you always have coffee in a Bedouin camp. And we got, we were there somewhat uh, in late afternoon. And the leader of the camp made the coffee and with a mortar and pestle ground it up and he's clacking the pestle along with the mortar and the rhythm and the sound was echoing through the Sinai and it was a message to other Bedouin encampments that guests were here and the coffee made over an open fire was absolutely delicious. The women then made us bread. Bread in what's called an earthen oven a hole in the dirt, perhaps a foot deep, with twigs and combustible material that was lit, and then a dome placed over top, and the dome heated with the fire underneath. And taking flour and water, that was all, much like making a pizza, spinning it about and flipping it down on the, on the dome, it cooked very quickly. 
And with a twig, one of the women flipped it over and cooked the other side, then took it off, broke it into pieces, put it in a basket and passed it around, and then made another one. And as we were eating the bread, she was making more. But then she felt the dome and it was cooling off. The fire was going down. So she lifted the dome with a twig, a stick, reached in a little pouch that was beside her, threw something into the fire and flared up. What was that? I asked. Salt from the Dead Sea that has a very high magnesium content. So when you throw it in the fire, it flares up. It flares up. You are the salt of the earthen oven. How clever is that? That's what we're to be. We're to fire people up for God. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people put light on neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the very same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Seated on the Mount of Beatitudes in that natural amphitheater and facing east, looking across the Sea of Galilee to the other side, that's the Golan Heights. In Jesus' day, there were nine Gentile cities on the Golan. And a tenth was Beit Shan, where we cross over the fording point on the Jordan River. They were Gentile cities. And at night, if you're over in Capernaum, or you're on the Mount of Beatitudes, and you're looking across to the Golan, you can see the lights of the other cities. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. So let your light shine like that that all may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. A clever and memorable introduction. Blessed is A, for they shall be B. Blessed is C, for they shall be D. Blessed is E, for they shall be F. And then two metaphors. You are the salt of the earth, the salt of the earthen oven, and you are the light of the world. Salt and light. Now, Jesus moves to six propositions that exceed the law. Six propositions that exceed the law. He says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter or the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. I've not come here to eliminate the law. I've come here to transform it and fulfill it. Now, regarding murder, you have heard it was said to people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, 
Anyone who says to his brother, Raka, that's like giving him the finger, is answerable to the son of uh, Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there's, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave the gift there. I don't really need it, he says. Leave it there. Straighten this thing out with your brother. Then the two of you come back together. Murder. And it's not killing. Murder. The unlawful, premeditated taking of another person's life. That's the final step in a series of events. You have someone who insults you. Someone who just says nasty things about you. Who, who is destroying your character online. Who gossips about you. Who undermines your credibility with your, your boss or your company. One thing after another. And it gets your goat and you... You go, oh, I hate that guy. And then it escalates and it escalates until finally you get to the point where you've had it. And one night, you go to his house and you wait in the bushes. And he pulls up into the driveway, gets out of the car, is putting a key in the front door. And you step out of the bushes and put a bullet through his head. That is the unlawful, premeditated taking of another person's life. It began with an insult, anger, looking bad, and it escalated to that. The unlawful, premeditated taking of another person's life is the final step that began with something much smaller. So when you feel that something much smaller going on, deal with it then. Because when you're in the bushes, cocked and locked, it's too late. Now, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in his heart. Same thing, same principle. You don't wake up in the morning, look in the mirror and say, gee, I think I'll commit adultery today. No. It's the final step in what became maybe a little flirting. Um, and it grew and it grew and it grew. And when you're in the Ritz-Carlton Hotel inserting the key card in the door and she's there or he's there with you, it's too late, buddy. Too late. At the very beginning, you know where this is going, end it there. Divorce, <laughs> appropriately following adultery. It's been said anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, causes her to become an adulteress. Marital unfaithfulness, the Greek word is porneia, porneia. We get the word pornography from it. It's, in my view, a broader term than simply marital unfaithfulness. If you're married to a person and you're treated terribly 
you're married to a person and he beats you. He kicks the crap out of the kids and doesn't work and is a drunk. I don't know that God has called you to live that kind of life. That's something that you have to really look carefully at with your pastor or priest. It's a serious thing. I tell you, anyone who divorces his wife, except in the case of porneia, which in my view would include a broader range of things, causes her to become an adulteress, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. That's a tough one in our day, and I, I guess over half of the people who are married are divorced. Something we need to think about. Oaths. You've heard it said of people long ago, don't break your oath. Keep your oath. I tell you, don't swear at all. If you say you're going to do something, simply do it. Don't make a big deal of it. Don't spout oaths and, oh, I'll promise to do this and that. Just quietly do what you say you're going to do. And if you don't intend on doing it, just say no. An eye for an eye. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Remember Tevia in Fiddler on the Roof? Oh, great. That way we'd all be blind and toothless. <laughs> but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn and give them the other one. I have a hard time with that one. I was a Marine for six years. I, you know, we run to the sound of the guns. But uh, no, your job, when there's an encounter, is to de-escalate the encounter, not escalate it. De-escalate it. Love your enemies. You've heard it was said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. I tell you, love your enemies and pray for them. Same principle. A person's an enemy. You can de-escalate that relationship. Turn the heat down. And that enemy can become a friend. Giving to the needy. Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. If you do, you'll have no reward from your father. I get in trouble on this one all the time. Many of our churches and parishes have big donors who give a lot of money and in exchange want their name on the building. I suppose that's okay. But if that's what you do, don't expect your reward in heaven because you got it right there, your name up in lights. No. I, I rather like those donor boards where you have the, the big donors, anonymous. The intention isn't to get attention, it's to help whatever cause it might be. Prayer. When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. They love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the streets. Say, well, they've received their reward. Oh, look at him praying all the time. Look at that. No, just pray quietly. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses. Lead us not into temptation, 
but deliver us from evil. Really simple prayer. We don't have to be all fancy about it. Fasting. When you fast, don't look somber like the hypocrites do, long face. No. Prayer, almsgiving, and fasting. That the three devotional pillars of Judaism. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Store up treasures in heaven. You know, we, we spend so much time acquiring stuff, acquiring a, a beautiful home, a stock portfolio, a, collecting this, that, and the other thing, having people take notice of us. But honestly, in three generations, well, my sons will remember me. My grandsons will remember me. Maybe great-grandchildren if I have them. But by the fourth generation, for the vast majority of people, by the fourth generation, no one will know you even existed. So don't look at yourself as being so important. Better to have treasure in heaven. And don't worry. Don't worry about your life, about what you'll eat, what you'll drink, your body, what you'll wear, and being caught up in the materialism of the world. It'll take care of itself. We don't need that much. Think about more important things. And don't be judging people all the time. Looking at people and talking about them behind their back. No. Six propositions that exceed the law, six concrete actions to implement the law. And now, a three-part call to action. Ask, seek, and knock. Ask, it will be given to you. Seek, you'll find. Knock on the door, it'll be opened. Just ask. Which of you, if his son asked for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asked for a fish, give him a snake? No, if we can do good things for our children, how much better will God do good things for us? All we need to do is ask. Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad the road that leads to destruction. Why? Did God make it narrow? No. Throughout my life, I've spent a lot of time on hiking trails. We walked the Camino de Santiago three times, three different segments of it. We've climbed big mountains and hiked in big forests. The out-of-the-way places are the best. And they have very narrow trails. Why? Because not many people walk on them. The trail is wide. The trail is wide because so many people walk. But the narrow trail is where you find the really good stuff. 
watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ferocious wolves. There are always going to be people out there to con you, to convince you, especially in the world of religion. Watch out for them. Watch out. Most people are authentic. But boy, there are some out there, hmm, some out there you want to avoid. This is such a great teaching. Jesus concludes by saying, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who will build his house on rock. The rain came, streams rose, the winds blew, beat against the house. It didn't fall. Because it had a solid foundation on rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them to practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell with a great crash. There's no better foundation, no firmer foundation, than building your house on the Lord. Well, that brings us to the end of this podcast. I think I ran us over again, but, uh, but this has been fun. I'm having a great time here with you, and I'll see you next time. Bye-bye.